0: There was a couple of incidents when you guys left me at the Melbourne airport. I actually did not put my suitcase on and I held up the plane flight and people were getting pissed because I, I was still. You were flip flopping? I was flip flopping, you know. And, and I was like, and your mom's like, just go, let's go. Then I'm in New Zealand because there's a stopover in New Zealand. And I called her from New Zealand. And I said, I'm, I'm coming back. And your mom was like, no, just go. And that last call in New Zealand was the final straw. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. You choose
1: something that even if it fails, even if it fails, you are okay. going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in that. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your that.) <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard about the time that Frank Donner made the painful decision to move back to Los Angeles, momentarily leaving behind his wife, his daughter, and, well, me. Yeah, you heard that right. Today, we're talking to my dad, producer, actor, and family man. I've heard bits and pieces of his story before, but now we're taking a true deep dive and exploring topics and stories that I honestly hadn't heard before. I mean, my dad's a pretty cool guy. He worked alongside the likes of Mark Ruffalo and Benicio Del Toro at the prestigious Stella Adler Conservatory. He's gone all the way to the Academy Award for Best Documentary. He's run multinational companies, and he's even started his own marketing agency, Black Box Creative Group. Frank's journey through Hollywood is certainly a lesson in adaptability. Like the overlapping highways of Los Angeles, his life could have gone in any direction, off any exit, to one of hundreds of vastly different neighborhoods. Yet, what if only one route could bring him to the love of his life on a different continent? And what happens if, like Frank, we only have one moment in time to make the right decision, a decision that could lead to the highest heights or the lowest lows? Let's zoom in on this big picture and see Frank's early childhood in Chicago, back when his future was as blank and unmarked as fresh winter snow. What's your like, earliest memory growing up in Chicago?
0: The first one that comes to mind is sport- sparklers was on 4th of July. Uh, and then the next one would be um, making an igloo in snow.
1: What did that look like?
0: Like a giant snowman, <laughs> a disheveled one anyway.
1: Yeah. Was that with like all your, your brothers and sisters? Because you're, you're one of 10 brothers and sisters. So like, what was that dynamic like growing up for you?
0: Since there were 10 of us, five girls and five boys, there was, uh, you know, there's always dynamics. Obviously, the older siblings took care of the younger ones. I think we were a pretty tight-knit family. I mean, there are times where, you know, we grew up in Downers Grove, not to be confused with Donner, but as D-O-W-N-E-R-S. My siblings were, you know, we were kind of watching out for each other. You know, there was a time where we had a bobsled area not far from where we lived. And I remember I was probably maybe six or so, and somebody was picking on me, I think because we got in the way of their bobsled or something, uh, sledding. And then my brother Dave stepped in, and then the guy was too big for Dave, and then Paul stepped up, <laughs> and then Rick showed up, and my dad showed up. So we were fiercely supportive of each other.
1: I love it. It's like Russian nesting dolls of yeah. Like yeah. brothers well, like coming is. up. Is like-
0: yeah. I mean, there was always somebody there to protect us, and we grew up in a kind of idyllic part of Chicago. Downers Grove was a, you know, small, sleepy town. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a really great place to grow up, you know, lots of room to run.
1: Yeah. Did like all the kids have a, like a thing, you know, like, cause I think like being one of 10, you have to differentiate yourself almost somehow.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously being in a family of 10, you know, you're all from the same family, or at least they told us we were. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of them were adopted. Uh, but yeah, there's, you know, it's it's interesting. I think the dynamics of a large family has its pros and cons, but everybody is very identifiable by their character traits. You know, Barb as the oldest sibling and of course a girl. Um, she was mom, you know, and she has always been kind of mom. And even to this day, she's friends with all of the nieces and nephews, and um, she has that kind of caretaker personality. Rick had a dominant force. I wouldn't say he was dad, but he became very good with mechanical things, and he did very well in his own entrepreneurship. And then down the line, I think by the time it got to myself and my sister Nina and Mike, the, the last three, you know, during kind of family dynamics, there's always this, you know, my dad was a pretty powerful force in our family. Um, you know, ex-military and was going to be a priest, yeah. seminarian, you know, went all the way to novitiate. So he was pretty dominant. And so in order to break some of what could be a volatile situation, I did become the comedic and comic relief of the family. And I think that, you know, has carried on and, and what I love doing. So yes, acting came very early uh, in my days. And I use that as a, as a way to diffuse situations. Sometimes, especially the comedic part.
1: You eventually moved to California. What sparked the move?
0: When my father, your grandfather got a opportunity with the company he was working, which was beacons moving in storage at the time as an executive, he was able to get a transfer to California. So they jumped at the chance.
1: What were you thinking of the move?
0: Well, at the time, you know, I was still pretty young, so I think I was eight eight going on nine. I think there was an excitement for generally for the family. And then when my dad said, I have this opportunity, you know, and we're going to move, I'm like, it was an adventure.
1: And so did you all like pack in the station wagon and drive across the country?
0: Yeah, we had a station wagon, you know, with that paneling, that wood paneling in the side. They packed us all in and we made the, uh, the road trip cross country. We actually didn't quite almost make it because we were all piled in and we had stuff still on the car and stuff behind the car in a trailer. And when my mom was driving somewhere, I want to say Nebraska, but I'm, I could be wrong, a woman was doing a U turn on the freeway and my mom couldn't avoid slamming into her. So we totaled our car. Total the car. Yeah. And uh, luckily nobody was injured too bad. Um, I think uh, Joey, my. Uh, Second older sister was injured in the front seat, and we had to, you know, uh, basically stay in some area in Nebraska for a while. And when we were leaving, they took off in a new car, and they were quite a few miles out when they realized that they were missing me. And they left me behind uh, accidentally. How? Uh, What were you doing? There were so many. (laughs) And while I was still at the place that they had left me, uh, and uh, I was give, given some ice cream by the, the the people that were running the place, figuring my parents would probably find out.
1: And they did come back for you. You're still here. <laughs> I am, yes,
0: I did I did make the trip after all.
1: Speaking of almost being orphaned and neglected, I actually want to go towards your playing like Oliver Twist in grade school because it seems to be like one of those, that the first plays that, really sparked your acting bug. How do you even get into that? Cause like did did grandma put you in that?
0: Yeah, grandma comes from a long lineage of theater and music and acting in her Polish roots. So I think she naturally tried to find things that each one of us would have in a kinship towards. For Nina and I, you know, my mom thought the summer thing was good. And I think that also gave me the impetus to um, try out for Oliver Twist as Oliver. Oh, and I got to wear my hair very long because they usually cut your hair short, you know, in in Catholic schools. And I was able to grow my hair very long over the summer for the role. And I thought that was cool. What was it
1: like getting into it? Because this is your first like real acting experience. Like, what was? It? Do you remember what it was like actually like acting on stage initially?
0: I think there's a lot of great memories because. Um, like even maybe for you guys or maybe more for Sophia, you know, I had um, the luxury of a mother who was somewhat theatrical mm. and there was a lot of music in Oliver Twist. And so one of the songs is uh, Where Is Love. And so. how go? Where is love? love Oh that's why Does you always sit, you sing that song all the yes. time is it because of
1: Oliver yes. Twist from but the Beauty child, child?
0: <laughs> Mom taught me how to play the song on the piano which is why you and your sister play the piano so yeah. she taught me how to play on the piano where is love but yeah it was really memorable because I got to practice the actually learn that song on the piano with my mom mm. she helped me vocalize it and sing it and I got to get out of class you know, early and sometimes hmm. miss things to do the performance. But I remember the opening night, because uh, this was really the first official time I was on a stage, that first opening night, all of the, uh, the principal, they were all nuns. We had all nuns that were teaching at um, St. Mary's here in California, and Northridge. And they were all up front in the front row. And one of them was Sister Enda. And she was really hard. And she had something called the Chicago Repeater, which was a newspaper. They used to call it the Chicago newspaper that she would carry around. That's what she would whack the kids with. So she was (laughs) harsh. Yeah. And I never knew that she had a soft side. But I remember when I was singing the song, Where Is Love? And I saw her crying. And I was like, wow. And for the first time, I understood the power of not only music, but of acting. And that never left me to this day.
1: So moving on from. Oliver Twist. Like, did you start to identify as an actor, as a creative? Like, did what was there more after that?
0: Uh, you know, there was because you know we did the summer programs at Powell Academy. Um, you know, I never looked at it as like I think that's so prevalent in today, and there's so many you know kids that could just through social media or just television identify early on, and parents who might push them. Into the roles. My parents never did that. They probably couldn't have the resources. It just was something we did like if, as if I was playing football. I didn't have aspirations to be anything, I just enjoyed it fully. The actually most exciting thing is we would put on backyard plays. And we lived next door to this Italian family called the Dickinsons, and they had five kids. And so we would put on these backyard performances on their basketball car- court. To me, that was greater than anything I could imagine, you know, although I liked it. So we, we always did that in the summers, but as far as you answering the acting question, it didn't come uh, around much later because I went heavily into sports through high school and I never really got to do what a lot of kids do is do theater like your sister in high school and carry it on. That came much later.
1: When does that interest bark again?
0: The, the acting interest came about probably in college Um, I was studying radio television film.
1: Why did you want to study
0: that? And I don't know if this is, is quite the honest answer because at the time, you know, coming from a very sort of work ethic, Germanic, more formulaic, it was like acting may not have been the thing you do. It's just a thing. And so maybe I was still driven by a more structured thing and radio television film still had interests. Right. So it it was like a, so
1: it was like associated with acting, but like knowing, knowing grandpa, like a very, very structured, organized person by the book. I imagine it would be hard to envision a world where you aren't kind of in corporate America at all. And so maybe at least this corporate America was as close to the actors as possible.
0: It's probably a good way of putting it because I still, you know, and even during that time, you know, I still had interest in it and I might have dabbled in other things outside of radio, television, film, floating around it, but without direction or anyone that I knew that was privy to a bigger, you know, um, situation or moving into something that was truly uh, training, you know, and acting. I then did my best to navigate it, which is why I took the degree in radio, television, film at the- Yeah.
1: And you made some connections there, right? Cause like your yeah. first job was from one of your, your friends. Yeah. yeah. My best friend Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so how did that happen?
0: So Lloyd, uh, Martin and I were buddies in college and he was a musician and played in a rockabilly band. So we hung out and did things. And then when I, around the time I was graduating college, um, I was looking for a gig and I had this kind of degree in, you know, radio, television and film. And he said, to me, you know, my dad works at, near Universal at this place called Video Masters. And they do this thing called post-production. You should check it out. So I went down to uh, meet Lloyd's father, Lloyd Sr. And uh, he interviewed me and um, he gave me a job in the Spartan spot. And so that was my first segue into, into the world of, of production, if you will.
1: Yeah. And what did you think of that first job in production? You
0: know, post-production is a very dry aspect. It's the final stage of, of, you know, finishing something. So it had interest because you were watching television and film. It had to come through. And this was in early days of technology. So there was interest in it. There was a technological component and there was a finishing component of getting something done to be aired. So I learned a lot, but no, it was not. You know the exciting part do you think
1: creatively it was it was like satiating
0: no because that there was the first awakening you know where, and i was working after this for a year i was working there and uh you know not i think probably a year after college or so and um there was this great subway sandwich place just around universal studios and i was always get there and i would get this uh, Subway sandwich, they made the best pastrami and Cheetos. It was my thing, and a drink. And I remember going there, uh, you know, during lunch one day. And I'm sitting in my car, and I'm like, "So is this all there is? Post-production? Damn! I will not live life like this." And I said there was an epiphany. I said, "Ah, this no, nah, this this is this can't be it." I wasn't feeling fully satisfied, satisfied, and I didn't want to have a life of eating pastrami sandwiches and Cheetos and Diet Coke, you know, endlessly. And so then there was another occurrence through this Lloyd, which got me to then change it up. And I shared with him my angst. I said, Lloyd, I'm not really, you know, happy. You know, I was making good money, but something was bugging me. And I said, you know, I was thinking of buying a house at one time because I was making some money. And, uh, and he said, you need to go to Europe for three months. And I'm like, what? but how will I live? I need a job. He goes, you'll always have a job to come back here. And so he was the first to inspire me. And then I sat down with your grandfather my father at a Chinese restaurant and said, dad, you know, I was about to buy this house and put a down payment, but then I'm thinking of going to Europe. And my dad was really good. He goes, you should go to Europe.
1: So what, what happened in Europe?
0: Well, I started to, I decided to go with my best friend and neighbor, Bob Dickinson. And uh, we had prepared to do this whole thing and travel to Europe. And then, within maybe a few weeks of us going, or maybe it was longer, he decided to bow out. So that means, and I wasn't going to stop this. I was going to do this trip. And I went and got the Let's Go Europe book. And my dad and my parents hooked me up with somebody I could stay with in London to at least kickstart it. And then you did the URL and you, uh, a lot of, um, Americans and other people traveling, uh, you use the youth hostel and the let's go book. And it was kind of well mapped out and traveled. Although a little bit of scare, you know, a little bit of nervousness, I was excited.
1: So when did you start renting bikes?
0: Well, I, I traveled a little bit and then probably maybe halfway through my trip, my time away. Uh, I was in, uh, Copenhagen and, uh, there was a youth hostel there and I was, uh, sitting, uh, eating something with a uh, who is the guy I met along the way. And, uh, he was telling me about his family who were one of the biggest, uh, distributors of, um, toilet seats. And, uh, and then we were eating something and I said, we should go and rent some bikes. And then all of a sudden this person said, came out of you know nowhere and said, you going to hire bikes. And I heard this Australian accent and this girl poked her head up and I'm like, Whoa, And even Girloff goes, whoa, but uh, that like stopped me in my tracks. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. And then Girloff and I had like, we had to like duke it out for her. And then we all hired bikes, rented bikes, and we took off. That was the first time, of course, uh, meeting your mother. And um, that changed my world forever.
1: Yeah, so uh, how did you end up beating off Girloff?
0: Well, you know, your mom could probably, you know, bring some of this into it, but I think uh, somehow I inspired her by saying that I was from California. I was American, even though she said she'd never be with an American. And I was one of 10 children. I think that piqued her interest. One of 10, all from the same parents. I said, yeah, yeah. And I started to tell her my story. Uh, And then I think along the way, I started to hum a few bars and sing. And she thought, wow, this guy can sing. But I think by the time we got to Poland, uh, that's probably when I, she decided maybe I was, you know, a better catch than Gerloff. But she could have been the toilet scene queen of the world. She could be sitting on millions, literally.
1: So when, so you guys started traveling together, like all over Europe, right?
0: Yeah, so she had already been traveling a little bit. And then we left Copenhagen and decided to take the ferry to, I think it was to Poland. And we were, you know, in Czechoslovakia. Lots of interesting occurrences along the way. But yes, we started to travel and, you know, get to know each other. And we had uh, all the way to Greece and then on into Turkey, to, uh, from, from Rhodes to Turkey. Uh, so it was probably the most memorable time of my life in travel, meeting somebody that you immediately connected with, that rocked your world. And I think that solidified you know, in my mind, I'm not sure about your mom's, but it certainly solidified in my mind that I wanted to be with this person.
1: When did the travel come to an end?
0: My sister Nancy was getting married, and uh, that was nineteen eighty-nine, I think that was the year I was traveling, and she said, You I, you know, you must come back from my wedding. You're in the wedding party. I will never forgive you. So I had that. I was that close to like staying with your mom and traveling because like you know, and that was in Turkey. So we had gone to places like Hagia Sophia together, very spiritual and zen. And we had the incredible, you know, the salt bath and and getting, you know, all these incredible experiences in, in uh in Turkey. And I think we are at one of the bazaars in Turkey, kind of like a market. And I had said I gotta go back.
1: When did you get in contact with her again?
0: Well, um, she did end up coming and staying. Uh, you know, going in through New York and she has some interesting stories of her own there. And then she came through Chicago and stayed with some of my um, relatives. And then she came into California and it was more hopeful for me, like, oh, this thing might work. You know, now yeah. she's in California staying with me.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, how, how did you, maybe, maybe we track back a little bit. How did you start getting involved in acting again?
0: I think I started to meet people who were more like the people I met in Europe, were more artistic. And um, I think, you know, when your, you know, your mom came, I think we started to meet some people and then I started to explore acting through friends and other people I met. And before I got to Stella Adler, I actually was taking acting classes.
1: How were those first acting classes?
0: They were good. I was probably in my late twenties maybe. And there was an acting coach called Corey Allen, who was very good. Somebody referred me to him. I met a friend who, whose mom was an acting teacher. And I took that for a while.
1: And what were you learning about the craft?
0: You know, I think this was the, the other side. It was probably the non real creative side of, of, of acting that you might get in some great universities and and theater programs i was getting sort of the commercial side of things meaning like this is what you need to do as an actor and learn and here's some skill sets that you have it wasn't the deep learned aspect which you would get from a stella adler
1: how did you find out about stella adler's conservatory
0: yeah, I think that probably came again through, um, you know, the trail of finding the breadcrumbs towards something that, like, well, you know, this is interesting. I'm going out on these auditions, and it seems good, but I like like it didn't seem to have the same thing that I thought it would. It seemed very sur- it seemed very surface. And then I think I met someone, whoever that might be, that said, you know, somebody said there's something called a conservatory where you can study for a couple of years. You you know, you auditioned for it. You were still able to manage working. And who is Stella Adler? So Stella Adler is probably one of the most prominent acting teacher of that time, and so her school was based on really learning and understanding the backstory of of your character. And I just fell in love with the process. And who were
1: some of the students that you were that were in the conservatory with you?
0: Well, Mark Ruffalo, Tim McNeil, Selma Hayek, Scott Corley, go on and on. There's, you know, so many great actors.
1: And were you guys like all hanging out together?
0: Yeah. You know, I think that was the other beautiful thing about the conservatory. You made such good friends. We talked theater. We ate theater. We enjoyed each other's company. And it was magical.
1: So as you're going through the conservatory, how are you thinking about like diving into acting as a career?
0: You know, I don't know if I was ever thinking about it. I, I guess I, I felt still like being in the backyard as a kid and doing, you know, the great zucchini. <laughs> it just seemed so magical. But I could just sit in the theater and just listen and watch. And I became fascinated with theater. And so I didn't really think, you know, of the commercial side. I didn't think, of I mean, I, I guess I just still had to do what I do to make a living, you know, as a waiter. And I wasn't thinking that that I had to jump into something and call it a career I didn't jump in as deeply as the people that were gone on to do it as they, and, and many of them today are still doing it. So when you finish up the program,
1: what, what were your, what were you thinking your next steps would be?
0: You know, I, I think when I finished up, you know, I had a bunch of my colleagues that were starting to, to drop into their own world of, of acting. And I think I was still in the adventure mode. Um, so I think I started to pursue the business side and I can't remember timeline wise, you know, when all of that came into it, but I think I started to look at not so much auditioning, but maybe trying to get a manager. And I was looking at some of my colleagues and what they were doing, but many of them were still doing theater. So I would, I was doing a little bit of theater. I still wanted to do that part of things. Um, so it came a little bit later, you know, if I look at the timeline, Um, And your mom was coming into the picture at some point. And I think she was very supportive before I started to really look. And I met an agent at the Girch agency that was a friend of my, you know, uh, Mike, Uncle Mike's uh, wife, your aunt, Claudine. And so I started to look at that business side while I was still working. Um, And I think uh, that's when I started to kind of leave just theater and then look at like actually auditioning, actually going out. But that was still elusive to me because I so was hanging on to the actual creative, fun, artistic side that the other side was just a thing because it didn't seem, I didn't seem to connect the two.
1: With mom, you were saying that you guys met each other, you know, when you were traveling around the world. What was happening in between, like when mom was back in Australia doing her degree and you were doing your acting thing in L.A., like were you guys communicating with each other? Like, how was that working?
0: When she went back um, after staying with me on her kind of she still went on to travel a bit more, I think. And then she said she's got to get back for her, you know, for her degree and finish, you know, um, her five year architecture degree, which she had one more year to go. And this was the summer and I went back kind of to work and we, I thought, wow, this, this could be it. Because even though she came through, it's not like we were, you know, uh, betrothed to each other. You know, she's like, yeah, I got to go back and you know, it's nice being with you and thanks very much. And I'm not quite like that, but I'm like, I, we got to keep in touch. I got to see you. And so back then it was probably $3 and 60 cents a minute to call Australia and I Which would, is very expensive Very expensive, yeah Think about being on for 10, 20 minutes Yeah, and um, especially
1: would, like what's minimum what, what are you making at your wait, table waiting jobs?
0: Yeah, you know it, I think at the time I was I might have been back at Universal uh, And making a little bit better But still it was expensive And I didn't want to lose that touch point with her So I was calling her, I was sending her letters, and letters took a long way. It wasn't, you know, basically just an email. I would send these lengthy letters, but just expressing my love. And, um, you know, some time had passed. And I remember my sister Nancy calling me up and said, you know, hey, you know, I know, you know, you're thinking about karma all the time. And and uh, I was listening and there's this radio station that's having this sweepstake. And if you're the, you know, the final caller, you'll win a trip to Australia. And I'm like, really? She goes, yeah. And I said, well, you know, now those are things, yeah, you know, I think they're rigged. And, and she goes, no, 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 you, you know, you just have to call in. I kind of finally relented and I did the, um, I did this thing. You had to be the 10th caller each day uh, and basically say what the Olivia Newton-John song was playing and then you would be entered into this drawing. Uh, I, I think it was the last day I decided to do it because it was a Friday and my sister Nancy had called me and said, hey, are you gonna do this? And I did it and I got the song right and I jumped in and uh, got into the drawing. Didn't mean I was the sweepstakes winner, and then it was um, the following week. My sister was on the freeway, and they announced a Frank Bonner with a B. And my sister's like, "No, it's got to be Donner." And then they corrected it. And then she called up the office that I was, you know, working at, and she said, "Hey, you you got the sweepstakes?" And I said, "What?" And it turned out to be a round trip ticket for two from here to Melbourne, where your mother lives. The melbourne australia and they had all these great things and when i called i said hey you know it's a round trip ticket for two from here but i'm actually in love with this girl who's already in australia so they loved my story they modified it flew me to melbourne and then we had all this stuff and i got to just dis- you know discover melbourne on somebody else's dime wait what did what did mom think about this she couldn't believe it. I mean, you probably have to ask her or she'll remember, but she was like, she thought I was kidding at first. And I'm like, no. And she thought, well, maybe he's like faking it and he's just coming over here anyway. But no, she finally, you know, thought this was incredible. And I thought it was fate. I think it was fate because we were not, you know, this this didn't happen. I'm not sure we might have been together because she was, you know, I think she might even had somebody that she was fond of back there. So yeah, I got to go to, to Melbourne and then they flew us to a five-star hotel in Sydney. There was all this stuff. Wow. And then a they five-star flew- hotel
1: in Sydney yeah. too.
0: And then they flew us back together to the United States where she could be here and then they would fly her back home again. So she got to s- spend more time, meet more of my family and fall in love with my family too. And then we, we used part of it cause you could fly back to stop over in Hawaii And I think it was in Hawaii where I just was even more deeply in love. And that's when I decided, I think, I think we just, you know, fell madly in love. And I think it was then that I decided um, I would move to Australia. And I loved Melbourne. I fell in love with Melbourne. Yeah.
1: What made you eventually leave?
0: I think a combination of I was getting a little homesick. I wasn't quite fully fulfilled and everything. Melbourne at the time felt small to me, to the rest of the world where LA is quite a megalopolis and like New York. So, and your mom was inspired to taste uh, America again and live there. So after nearly two years, and even though my career, was going well in this theater circuit and working with very dear friends, Nina and Adam. I felt like this was a time to go back and seriously devote to acting. And mom again, could use her um, architecture degre- degree degree uh, to come out here and uh, apply that. Although she had to get her license for, for California, she was excited by that. And I think we both embarked on that journey and then we flew out and took an apartment in Los Feliz and that began a new chapter of our life.
1: What did like mom think of living in LA?
0: Well, when we moved here, we were living in Los Feliz. It was the one year that had had torrential rain for like a month straight. Now, I don't think we had a car yet, so mom had to take the bus. Although, where we were living in Los Feliz was very artistic and cool, but mom almost hated it, because she thought, this is horrible and public transportation and rain. But it wasn't until we, uh, I mean, we were the only, we were subletting from a friend of mine that was working on a film. So it didn't, we'd have to stay there too long. And then we found our own place and then things started to open up. But she hated it at first. Yeah.
1: I mean, I imagine when you're thinking like, oh, it's going to be like blue skies and and nice cars and it's public transport and torrential dam powers. So you are back in LA. What are you doing?
0: Well, I wasn't quite segueing. I I want to say I was uh, then working at Universal on the lot doing post-production, mm-hmm. back in post-production. So I fell back into more traditional work to make ends meet, probably from all the things I was doing. And there was a lot of other things going on. And even though I was working at Universal, I still was not ready to give up the acting Mom then went to work for Altoon and Porter Architects in the Variety Building, and so we started to establish our lives. We got married in 1996. We got married, and we had two weddings, one in Australia, which was the official wedding, and some family flew out, and then back here, a friend of mine knew somebody who had a a lead and into the Oviatt Building downtown, and I thought that would be a picturesque a uh, place for mom and I to get married, seeing your mom was an architect and it was, and we had an amazing wedding, very art deco, incredible catering, all of that. And so that was 1996. And then yes, in 1997, you know, there was this uh, one day your mom came and said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm pregnant and I'm like, what? And that like blew me away because I was still interested in in doing my craft and you know balancing it and then when that happened i think there was a sense of joy a sense of wonder Um
1: yeah what well, was mom what was
0: moms we we actually both went in and it was a really emotional time for us both we actually went to a church and we found solace in there and we just sat and we actually just kind of together joined and like god we're gonna do this and it was very emotional we cried we wondered. And then uh, mom was ready for it. And then I asked her, you know, I said, Hey, I'd like to take a little time for me. I want to find out a little bit more about me to prepare prepare for fatherhood. And I want to discover a little bit more about myself in preparation for you. And so I, you know, journaled and I took the um, Starlight Express up north and I met all sorts of people who just seemed to gravitate about what it was to have family and children and grandchildren. And it enlightened me. And I think it prepared me for how I wanted to approach being a father and a parent and raising a child.
1: We were talking about Frank Donner, the artist. Frank Donner is still an artist, of course. But now we're moving on to Frank Donner, the executive, the business mogul. Can you tell me a little bit about how you dived into the executive world and maybe bring me up to meeting Jeff?
0: I was working on the universal lot at Anderson video. I was getting recognized both, uh, operationally and leadership. And, um, there was some changes going on with, uh, the company. Um, and uh, where were you working at that point? This was a company called Anderson video on the universal studios lot. And so in that movement, um, I got recognized by some of the leadership and was offered a job to come and work more in the marketing sales aspect of things and the business development.
1: Like, how did you feel about climbing this, this ladder? Was it exciting for you? Was it just like, okay, like this is kind of what I have to do at this point?
0: Um, no, I don't ever thought I had to do it. I guess it was nice to be recognized. And I think money always speaks volumes sometimes when somebody is, you know, while you were still struggling, say on the creative side, you know, and acting, and that wasn't bearing as much fruit uh, economically. And so now you're getting, you know, pulled in a direction where you were given some accolades and recognition, so it felt good. So I think things just unfolded and I followed that train.
1: You're, you're having this executive track, but also production, like in film, also takes a hold in your life
0: yeah you know there you know i began to fast understand what the real purposes of post-production and finishing a film were what it meant to a filmmaker especially independent filmmakers and then i began to meet other filmmakers independent filmmakers and befriend them and i fast understood that a lot of independent filmmakers would create a project write a script maybe even get it shot and in the can as they said but then they realized the last mile was very difficult you know finishing it so i befriended people befriended me because i could help them get things done so along the way i started to meet other uh, independent filmmakers people were asking me hey maybe you'd like to be part of this film probably a double-edged thing which is maybe if you're part of it you can help us So I started to get a lot of credits for, you know, usually a thank you on a film. Frank helped us get this film done or in the can. And so as that moved forward, I was able to help independent producers. And uh, I was working uh, for a company, uh, Andy McIntyre. He owned a company called AME. And that was, so I had left 4MC to work with Andy because he tapped me to help grow his company. And then soon he then gave me the role of president. So now I'm, I go from an executive in sales. President? Yeah, for, you know. What does that mean, to be president? Well, uh, in this case, I think he saw me as somebody who could have responsibility, leadership, and take over some of the roles that he had. About eight months after I was there, I got a lot more money. And that started uh, a new journey forward into um, supporting people. You became
1: president and then um, you're getting more opportunities. So like, how do you get the opportunity for this documentary?
0: You know, when he gave me the role of president, I was able to do a lot more for people. And we were living in Van Nuys at the time. We had bought our first house and... Somebody who came by our house, because your mom had painted it this beautiful color, her architecture skills came in, and mother stopped by and saw the color of the house and said, wow, that's great. My daughter lives not too far from her. Her name is Amy, Amy Berg. And could she see that, you know, your house and inside? Oh yeah, absolutely no. So we became friends with Amy, who had been working as a reporter at the time for some news outlets. And we befriended her. And in that friendship along the way, and me working at uh, ADS, Amy had some ideas about shooting her first documentary. And she came to me, or I think with a couple of ideas. She had, you know, she was very talented. And I think she had three ideas that she was thinking about for documentaries. One was about stay-at-home dads. Another one was about pub life in London, I think. And the third one was about a pedophile priest. And she said, what do you think? And I said, well, that last one sounds very interesting, especially me being a Catholic.
1: Why were you interested in it?
0: Well, I thought it was a topic that needed to be addressed and discussed. And when she told me about the nature of it and the priest in question, Oliver O'Grady, I thought this would have a profound impact. And maybe in some way it was almost my marketing brain or strategy brain said, this is going to be an important piece of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, so what are, what are the first steps in developing it?
0: Andy McIntyre wanted to sell ADS. I'd been talking and in talks with Amy about Deliver Us from, well, what was Deliver Us from Evil. It was now just a story they never have put the title yet. And, and that's a documentary. Yeah, and I was considering something and way out of my leagues to do something called an MBO, Management Buyout. And I'd done some reading. When nothing was moving along, this MBO idea came up, which I was kind of bummed about at the time, because then I went to Andy and said, I want to do a management buyout. And I don't think Andy liked that. I think he just wanted a sale. So we ended up parting ways, but I went then uh, and took a consulting gig for Rob Walston on this new startup uh, that was to be Mosaic Digital Studios. And they raised $650 million, I think with, uh, Peter Foreman uh, from Chicago and the Steinhardt Group. These are all private equity monies. And now I was on this new path, but I was only consulting. But at the same time, we were considering moving to Australia. With the
1: documentary, with Electrafilm starting you consulting, why did now, like 2006, seem like the right time to move everything to Australia?
0: there was something called central city studios developing in the docklands of Melbourne. And I had heard wind that that might be an opportunity. So I'd always considered wanting to live in Melbourne and raise the family. You guys were, your sister was four and you were eight. And I wasn't remember the film with Amy and deliver us from evil was still a nascent stage in development. And what I was doing with, what was then called mosaic digital studios or consulting was just a consulting gig. I was making a lot of money, but I wasn't an employee. And I thought, wow, I have this opportunity to move the family, still consult and still work on this film. And I saw Melbourne, which I always loved such a beautiful city as a creative outlet. Mm. And I spoke to your mom. I said, if we do this, which we did, We have to agree to use only our talents. We will have enough money and cushion to live several years, but it could be the first time we could jump into our full creative potential.
1: What seemed to really draw you in was the, the creative possibilities.
0: Yeah, it was another blue sky. I was leaving behind corporate America and I was excited for you and your sister to grow up in this very wonderful city.
1: So what was it like actually getting over there?
0: Well, your mom and I decided to move and got like a 20 or 40 foot container and sold the house. And we decided to rent uh, a place in Ormond. So, you know, we moved over there. But the ironic thing was Mosaic Digital Studio was raising more and more capital. Electrofilm, but, you know, was beginning to be realized as a established entity in Burbank. And we had just signed a deal with, I think, Sun Microsystems to put the infrastructure and the hardware for the software that we were creating, which was the first digital asset management system. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the documentary was picking up scene. We were shooting. Amy's vision was being realized. We were starting to get noticed and things were coming together. So I was flying back and forth almost three weeks on, three weeks off.
1: Yeah, how are, how are you feeling about going back and forth?
0: In Melbourne, I I was going towards the creative world. I even wrote, Mom, uh, I guess it would be a thesis, or I basically explored a whole idea, and I probably have it somewhere. It was very long, and I remember sitting in a cafe, and I said, this is what we should do. And, and your mom's like, oh, I don't know. And she was a little tentative she wasn't sold on this bohemian life mm-hmm. but i was and that caused some consternation and some difficult decisions that would eventually get us back here to los angeles
1: yeah what was the what were the decisions
0: we were just about about to buy this place overlooking the era we had considered all the options and everybody had to have their pros and cons and i even asked you samuel and then you said 50-50, dad. And of course, your sister was only four, so she was less, you know, invested in this. And your mom, you know, was probably 50 too. So we were all hovering on it. And your mom left the decision to me. What do you think tipped it over? I think, again, I go, and this is not saying anything on your mom. I think her decision to not join me in this plan that I was developing, that she wasn't 100% sold I'm um, what the hell I was talking about. And I had to try to sell her on that.
1: Well, I can imagine like looking at it from mom's perspective, like you're someone who's like, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And mom's say- someone who's like, let's plan it out. I, I imagine when she heard the plan, which is really just like, we'll figure it out. But this is the end point. That's a risk.
0: A well, big one. So yeah, it was, it became a very marked decision in her life and it was a difficult one. There was a couple of incidents when you guys left me at the Melbourne airport, I actually did not put my suitcase on and I held up the plane flight because I, I was still like, You were flip flopping? I was flip flopping, you know, and your mom's like, just go, let's go. And then I decided, you know, okay, I'm doing that. Then I'm in wow. New Zealand because there's a stopover in New Zealand. And I called her from New Zealand. I said, I'm, I'm coming back. And I was flip flopping. This is a wrong decision. And your mom was like, no, just go. And that last call in New Zealand was the final straw. And then I left for LA and then it became a whole process of moving back.
1: So is it like uh, going back into Electrofilm and Deliver some Evil?
0: You know, it was like a fast track. If I recall coming back, it went from just the consulting gig to officially taking over as president of Electrofilm. And uh, we went into a mode of, of acquisition because we, again, closed a lot of money. And so um, that began the dual role of growing a company with Jeff, you know, in a two year period and flying overseas. So I was also given the title of executive vice president of business development of Mosaic Digital Studios, the corporate company, because I was building a di- the flagship was Electrofilm. Flagship housed Mm. the technology of Sun Microsystems and all the software and the AI type of, you know, process that we're building with some really good engineer folks. And then I began a journey of flying, you know, Leipzig, Cologne, Stuttgart, Babelsberg, Berlin. We bought, you know, part of Babelsberg Studios, which was Marlena Dietrich. And we were acquiring companies and it was a fast, exciting time. And at the same time, I had the film Deliver Us Evil, which is equally like a bullet train you know picking up steam and we were moving towards uh the festivals in fact i remember a time amy and i were talking about film festivals and you get to premiere in one film festival first right there's an importance of that and i leaned toward la film festival we got selected and that also changed the course because it allowed the film to get much more notoriety so there were a lot of these events that were occurring concurrently that were extraordinary coming back was a whirlwind and at the same time you guys are coming back home mom's got to establish herself get back into her her role as an architect so there was a lot it was a very fast paced, you know all the way through 2007 when um, the film got nominated for an academy award i do remember it being just an incredible moment, like, wait, we're getting nominated for an Academy award. Because to me again, that, that documentary was full of a lot of emotions, you know, um, but it was amazing time because obviously it's the pinnacle of entertainment to be acknowledged by the Academy and certainly for Amy as a director Mm. uh, and at the same time, all of the people at, uh, Electrofilm were excited for me because we were doing some of the film production work at the company I was running. So it was like a duality in my world. Here's this one part, and this other part, is coming together. So a lot of our, our team at the time was super excited for me. Yeah. And um, so it, it was, uh, it felt like the right thing. Now here I'm coming back, and like, oh, I guess I made the right choice. What did mom think of? Everything else. Going I around. think mom was really excited. I uh. think that was also a, a turning point for her to be part of the world because she also helped do work. Because remember, documentaries don't have a lot of money. You're always begging, barn, and stealing to create a dream or, uh, you know, create this mission. So mom also worked behind the scenes. Mm. So she was involved, you know, she was invested. And so she supported me wholeheartedly. So she was, you know, equally getting this award with all of us.
1: I mean, it seems like everything worked out almost as as good as
0: it could have, right? It did. It did. I think all of the stars aligned and then there's the after part. Then it's sort of like other things kick in, like reality kicks in.
1: What's reality?
0: Well, Electrofilm was doing great in Rising, but then it started to have its own constraints and that's a story in and of itself. And then once we eventually made it to the Academy Awards, people would call me up and like, congratulate. what are you going to do now? I said, well, it's a documentary. I'm going to work.
1: Did he feel like you should be doing
0: something next? Yes, because, you know, a lot of things changed. And, what changed? Um, I think the difficulties at Mosaic Digital Studios and the consternation between what was going on that I didn't know anything about, it was at a top level, mm. was something that I was not happy about. And then after the film, you know, had its certain heights, I wasn't sure what was next in that world. So then, I got the idea of a company that could do not just post production, but could do script to screen. A company that could fulfill all of an independent filmmaker's dreams, and it was a one-stop shop where you could go from script all the way through the end, and then off into an area of sales or, uh, you know, film festivals but I wanted to develop that vehicle and that took raising money. And that's when I started to talk to Jeff and he said, let's do it. And that began the role of what would eventually be called black box creative group. What was it like raising money? Was
1: it easy as
0: easy as it seemed, you know? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, obviously Rob, you know, came from wall street. And so he, he knew private equity people, he knew money people. So he was in a very different stratosphere than I was. And I bit off more than I can do. You know, I was building all uh, another thing. And so you were almost trying to build
1: something that was like bigger in scope than what he was building. Right. Yeah. Like I, I,
0: you know, ideologically. Yes. It was far bigger than the one aspect of post-production and at digital asset management, it it
1: would probably harder to execute on.
0: It was because it would you know it would take on a lot so we did sell people on the vision we did raise a small amount of capital which was very difficult but we did fulfill it and that allowed us to strategize and in getting into the marketplace cuz you could either build it from scratch but you know there was you know stories you know of us doing on our acquisitions we had there was a business that was a dvd business but that's what's called a cul-de-sac industry it was going to end there was no real long term future his technology was advancing. There was the post-production. I had a friend of mine, whose father was from uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and very wealthy, and was going to give us several million dollars to uh, execute on this uh, friend of mine. Uh, you know, who was uh, uh, um, building a company in post-production, and then there was Jeff and I, um, an opportunity with a trailer company hmm. called Max Q.
1: Why didn't you take the millions of dollars?
0: You know, there's a lot of things uh, where Samra's vision wasn't my vision because, you know, you take money at that level to two to three million dollars. And then he wanted to execute on a high level um, post production. It was going to change the vision of what I wanted to do. And I don't think he was fully on board with that, but Jeff was. And so, Jeff, you know, and I remember the story, you know, I was talking. I hired a consultant to help me, you know, move this along. And he said, why are you bringing Jeff Wong into this? You know, he's not financial. He doesn't have money. He's not bringing money to the table. You know, he doesn't have sales, you know, background. I said, yeah, but you know what? There's something about him uh, that is stick-to-itiveness. I know he's, you know, I've worked with him. I know what he's made of, what his metal is. I know him, you know, deeply after working with companies. And I told this guy, this is the guy. This is the guy that will help me realize this company. And maybe this vision. And so when Jeff jumped in, that started the story and we raised this money and we decided rather than building it from scratch, we ac- acquired this trailer company, which was a marketing trailer company. So it was our first foray into marketing and advertising and understanding that was 2009 when we were in our So we really bought at the low end of the market and took. Uh, actually it gave us an ability to hire good talent cheaper because everybody was looking for jobs. And we basically, you know, uh, what's, what's the word fake, fake it till you make it. Yeah. And uh, was it
1: exciting to be on that ground floor?
0: It was, it was because it was again, another blue sky and it was hard work though. So, um, around 2019 is when things, you know, late 2018, 2019 became very challenging. Uh, and then, um, you know, that there was my own health issues in the summer of 2019 where. Uh, That took a change and uh, Jeff had to step up with our um, CFO, Chris. Yeah, what happened? Well, I had a congenital heart issue and um, that meant I had uh, two leaflets instead of three that other people have in a normal heart and that put pressure on one of my valves. And so I basically could have imploded at that time. It caused me a lot of um, uh, consternation because my doctor, my GP did not, diagnose it, even though I had a physical some years ago. And so every time I went to see him saying, I'm struggling with, you know, kind of my, my, um, my, my, my health, my wife thinks something's wrong. And yet I was physically looking healthy cause I was a runner or I am a runner, you know, you know, all the trail running. So physically I look good, but, um, he didn't catch it, you know, for months. And so what that does is my blood flow was off. And that took concentration off and I probably made some decisions and things that were probably not good. And Jeff was probably going, what the heck is going on with Frank? Unbeknownst to any of us, including your mom, I was about to basically uh, deep six, you know, I might not have been here. If it wasn't for your mom pushing and saying to the doctor, there's something wrong. And that's when I was diagnosed uh, with the congenital heart, which was, originally a heart murmur back around the time when you were born and um and then I w- went to the cardiologist I was in there one day which I didn't know what that meant and she said oh you know I have some good news and I'm bad news I'm like well give me the uh give me the bad news first and she goes well you're gonna need open heart surgery I'm like what and I was like what the heck? open like you know like cut my chest open like like and she goes yeah I said, well, what's the good news? You're going to live. <laughs> I'm like, that's good news. And I remember leaving the cardiologist after the echocardiogram and just, you know, like, like emotional and pointing up at God and going, you funny guy, you, you know. And um, at that time, you know, you were graduating UCLA and, you're, and so, uh, your sister was graduating yeah. Louisville High School. And I, I did not I
1: was just starting to work, too. Pardon me? I was just, I just had gotten my job at Jump Cut.
0: That's right. And I, and we wanted a graduation. So I didn't say anything to your mom for a bit. And I called my cardiologist uh, to ask her if that was okay. And I said, yeah, we're going to start to fast track this, but you got to tell her soon because we're going to get you in surgery. But I wanted to wait a little bit. It was probably maybe a week two uh, so that Sophia could have her graduation. And because there was a lot of strain for your mom getting all that. And we were going to be throwing you guys a dual graduation party. And so, um, so that was all happening at the same time. You know, um, I finally told Jeff and he's like, Whoa. And I told our CFO, Chris, who's also a business partner and an investor in the company. And they stepped up huge, uh, during that time.
1: So tell me about where black Box is today, what the projects look like, um, and, and what you're involved in.
0: Well, you know, I, I wanted to kind of also mention I think prior to like the interesting thing is Jeff and I always look back around 2016, probably 2015-2016, Jeff was always pushing to be me to be more creative and less operational and you know financial because I always had to wear the CEO hat and he said you need to do the things that you love and I was always trying to push Jeff to be more financial and you know learn from the CFOs that we would bring in and be more financial so it's like we were telling each other the things that we wanted that we thought were the things we'd like to be more involved and to be more creative. And I always hope that in our relationship, that because 10 Jeff is 10 years, my junior and an exceptional human being and leader. I always wanted to pass up proverbial baton as runners do to the next runner, which is Jeff and grab that baton and let him run for the next decade. That was always in my mind. So, my ill-fated situation with my heart really did that anyway. And so Jeff got that baton and he ran with it. And so during making it through the pandemic and supporting that, it started to open up these opportunities like what you mentioned about with this mobile only short form type of content. And then when we were moving through the pandemic, I started to think about another opportunity because we didn't have the same theatrical release type of opportunities. We had partnered with another company to do biz dev and that started to work. And Jeff had some clear visions and missions and what he wanted to do as a leader. And that gave me an opportunity to see if I could open up new doors with original content. And that was where Black Box Original was born. I hired a person named Karen Criswell to support that mission. She'd always been a contractor for Black Box over the years. And she had been with DreamWorks and she was a very good uh, producer and operational person. So she was kind of the first pick to help work on this. And Jeff and I talked about it at length and he was very supportive. He said, well, what do we need to do to launch it? You know, um, what is Black Box Originals? You know, um, uh, where do you see it going? And we sat down intimately and worked out a business plan. And so black box original spawned this idea of working in original IP and content. Not that we would develop it at this point. We're not ready to come up with our own ideas, write our own scripts. We would partner with other people. And so the first one out the gate was this, uh, a little spark, which is um, an animated series and we started looking at other projects, docu series, films, feature films, documentaries. And we have a slate of about six projects, but it was all in this new idea around creating uh, original content and that we would have some ownership. So it really kind of goes back almost to the original kickoff of script to screen and being involved in the whole process from development of a concept or an idea to um, pushing forward, uh, to complete a project. And yeah. Get it sold. And so, it
1: seems like you're now tapping into like the most creative parts of yourself.
0: Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I am. You know, I think that's, it's, it's exciting. You know, I was recently at the Tribeca film festival. Um, I have something called kid screen to Miami coming up, you know, I was at the produced by conference where there was pitches going on. So it is coming full circle. It's not fully mapped out, it's still in that, you know, very nascent stage of unknown and a little nervous about is this gonna work because it's a whole new entity. It's not officially launched, by the way. You know, it's still a soft launch. So black box originals, as we're seeing it right here, is not officially launched. Just want to say that. Ground floor. There's a lot of work and a lot of unknowns, but it is, I think, tapping into all the things that I enjoy about entertainment. And I think it's another blue sky picture for us, mm. you know, and for me.
1: So looking back at your story and all the things that you've done, um, what advice do you think you would give to like your 25 year old self?
0: Looking back at all, like you put it, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, meandering, but I think that I look back and I think I, You know i would say to myself continue to follow your heart i think i did follow my heart i was always given some signals from the universe that something wasn't happen happening and i would say probably to my younger self trust those gut instincts more and lean into them heavily so if you feel like there's a consternation or something in you is not quite right it's probably correct And you should lean into it and open it up and really allow yourself to embrace it fully and um, click into what is really driving you, you know, as a person on this planet. You know, what, not so much about what is your ultimate, you know, career path, but what's bringing you a sense of joy. And for me, I would tell that younger self, um, you know, be an adventurer, follow that gut, follow that instinct. Um, and you know, do it unabashedly. Don't look back. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already,
1: make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn.
1: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi.
0: Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from
1: Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan,
0: Harushi Kanauchi,
1: Kristen Haglin, Aya Cortes, and Valencia Lu.
0: Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from
1: Aiden Ashworth,
0: Nikki McGawer, Sylvie Wong,
1: and Eric Menno.
0: Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany
1: Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening
0: and see you next week.